Welcome to the Campus Energy and Sustainability Podcast. In each episode, we'll talk with leading campus professionals, thought leaders, engineers, and innovators addressing the unique challenges and opportunities facing higher ed and corporate campuses. Our discussions will range from energy conservation and efficiency to planning and finance, from building science to social science, from energy systems to food systems. We hope you're ready to learn, share, and ultimately accelerate your institution toward solutions. I'm your host, Dave Carlsgott. I'm a director of energy and utility advisory services at Brailsford and Dunlavey, an advisory firm focused on facility planning and operational efficiency within the higher education, K-12, municipal, and sports venue sectors. But my guidance is that just a certification is not enough. I mean, I've seen way too many green build buildings that use an excess amount of energy and water and way more than they were modeled and estimated. It's too late. You can't build your way to carbon neutrality. In this episode, you'll hear my interview with one of my B&D colleagues, Ron Herbst. Ron has a long and storied career spanning multiple decades. In this conversation, we'll focus on his previous role, where he led energy and sustainability efforts at the international firm Deutsche Bank. We'll discuss how he created and evolved the Eco Performance Management Office, or EcoPMO. Ron will explain the way he leveraged the financial, real estate, and contractual competencies of the bank and its staff to achieve a long list of performance targets, including carbon neutrality. Throughout this conversation, we work to translate the lessons Ron learned in the corporate world into a campus context. I hope you enjoy this October 2020 interview with Ron Herbst. All right, well, Ron, it's great to have you on the podcast. Dave, it's great to be here. Well, so we've worked together now for not quite a year, but more or less for a year. And every time I talk to you, I think I learned something new about your past. So just once and for all, and also for the listener's benefit, why don't you give us a little bit of background on just how did you get into this energy space and take us on a trip down memory lane to give us the, the origins of Ron? Sure. And by the way, it's a great sign when you learn something new every time you talk to someone. So I, I do the same with you, David. Always learn something new. So I've been an energy and sustainable professional for 30 years before the day that that was actually recognized as a career path. So my background is in, in a wide range from physics to environmental design to architecture to solar engineering. Grew up in the valleys in uh, California where anything was possible. You just had to try and you could build it. Um, so that was uh, my formative years. I worked as a consultant for a while in a consulting firm that did energy planning and design and MEP, mechanical electrical plumbing, drawings, uh, and then ventured into other areas, design, build, construction, found my way to energy performance contracting, where I um, helped uh, start up a couple firms, both in large power plants and, and just straight up energy efficiency work, a lot of federal contract work. And then I just keep getting bored throughout my, my um, career cycle. I've, I've moved on to corporate real estate, headed up CBRE's energy and sustainability practice, and then um, went to work for a big international bank, Deutsche Bank, which we'll talk about a little bit further. Uh, that gave me a challenge of taking a large global institution uh, to the highest greenium you could find and um, lead them to the path of, of carbon neutrality. And uh, since then, I've been working in higher ed, which is, um, has a lot of the same challenges, same solutions, and hopefully the listeners will learn something from my career path and learning. All right. Well, so I'm going to start with going way back. So 
you know, I've got young kids who are kind of starting to think about what they want to be when they grow up. But what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? And how did you end up going from being, you know, baby Ron to uh, the one that you just described? Hey, I wanted to live off the grid. <clears throat> I wanted to build my own house, make it a, a passive solar house, you know, uh, use solar energy to make my own water. I was in a mindset of, of being self-sufficient. In fact, my, my undergraduate degree, I did a double major in uh, envelope, double envelope housing, which was a super insulated housing solution, and heat transfer and low velocity laminar flows. You know, but I was always interested in building, so I, I kind of think of my career as being a building doctor. You know, so I have just focused my entire life on how to how to make the built environment more efficient and uh, more sustainable. That's been my calling. Yeah, how did you start that? Because when most kids are, are young, they're not wanting to be, they want to be a doctor, not a building doctor. So where do you attribute that history? Uh, just curiosity and um, in, in engineering, everyone has different talents. So I had a, um, you know, interest in way things worked. I was a mechanical engineer. I, I grew up in a machine shop. So I saw my dad inventing things all the time and building them. That was where my interest led. I was a um, student of Buckminster Fuller try to come up with elegant designs that use less and they're durable and you know make our interfaces with the planet work better. All right. Well, that, I guess that gives me a little better background on where you're coming from. But we set this podcast up, I think, to talk more about your time at Deutsche Bank. I know you led the creation of a what you always call the Eco-PMO office or the Program Management Office or Project Management Office. I know you can correct me on which, which you referred to it as. But before we get into that, just explain like what is a PMO office, and then let's let's dive into the Deutsche Bank story. Uh, the great thing about the letter P and Eco PMO is you can substitute a lot of things in there. It was a performance management office. It was designed to drive continuous performance improvements in all aspects of the business related to operations, whether it was the built environment, to the way we purchase things to our external reporting and validation systems. We were in a constant mode of driving continuous performance and feeding back uh, the results of that performance to all the stakeholders. You know, that was part of the secret sauce of, of making the bank carbon neutral and also just uh, create an environment for people to participate and learn and, and quickly share in best practices. It was a organizational framework to drive innovation and collaboration. So how, how did you get this gig? I mean, was this something they just posted on monster.com back then? Or? Yeah, this was a time when, um, when sustainability as a leadership opportunity was just becoming evident. And the European banks were competing on who could be carbon neutral. And nobody knew what that meant. I think HSBC was the first bank that said we we're going to be carbon neutral. And they decided they were going to buy renewable power projects around the world. So it was quietly advertised through a you know, head executive search company. And since I was leading the practice at CBRE, I had already gone through a, a number of client you know, cycles with 30 or 40 so you know, real estate centered companies that were outsourcing energy and sustainability functions. So I was a pretty safe bet for them. Oh, that's great. So when, when you took the job, how did that work? I mean, was you came in as an executive or what was the charge that they gave you? What were the resources you had to work with? Um, I was a director of energy and sustainability with, with no resources. But I did have the opportunity to create a plan 
um, uh, underwrite the plan with executive leadership and then go execute it. It was an opportunity to build an internal business. I, I liken it to, if you're familiar with the term of an entrepreneur, this is an entrepreneur. When you step inside of an organization, you, use, you have a new mandate to go innovate around. It was a startup. Well, this wasn't this right after the dot-com crash, or what, what, what time period are we talking about here? Oh, no, it was right after the financial crash. So, yeah, those were interesting times. I imagine the scenario, hired on, the bank wants to become carbon neutral. They don't know what carbon neutrality means. The board is meeting to sign up to a commitment, and we, we got through the commitment so far as how we're going to set aside money for carbon offsets, and then we had the financial crash. So, so it's in many ways kind of like what institutions are facing with right now with, with COVID-19, a, a paradigm shift in the availability of capital and, and, and what people are focused on. Um, so it was an opportunity to drive initially savings for the organization uh, because there was no ability to, to carve out capital for any function. And uh, that was actually a great place to land because I think energy and sustainability, when it's well executed, is really around operational efficiency and driving excellence in the way organizations use resources and report on the use of their resources. Okay, so they basically gave you no resources and said, go achieve better than any of the other banks. And by the way, you got to pay your own way by finding money within the organization. Is that a good summary? Well, no, I had, I did have a assignment. So, but there wasn't a, a an agreed to budget for the execution. You had to, you know, like most institutions, you have to come in, you have to build the case for this new initiative. And this was rightly identified as an operational initiative rather than a communications initiative. And I think that might be kind of unique because a lot of companies have started on the sort of communication and outreach side and then done some key procurement activities like renewable power and put their reporting functions in place and then operations comes latter. This was a intentionally you know one click away from the chief operating officer <laughs> so so it was a different level of sponsorship. Okay no that makes sense but but similar to a lot of higher ed institutions it sounds like you didn't get a huge staff to work with or you weren't operating an existing team, you were building this from scratch. That's right. Okay, so you got started, you worked for a bunch of different firms, you got recruited to come work at the bank. You built a team from scratch, essentially, make, making the business case for different things. What did you actually accomplish? Let's talk about some of the projects you got involved with or some ways that you instituted change throughout the bank. Well, the, I looked to see where I could be valuable. You know, So like any large organization, there's capital being spent, there's operational initiatives being spent. They all can have a improved view on how you invest, and particularly when you look at things from a total cost of ownership perspective. There was a major building coming out of the ground in Frankfurt, the new headquarters. There was an aspiration for the building to be of the highest rating relative to environmental performance. So one of the first places I, I went to work was helping underwrite the incremental investment for the Front Ferry Headquarters renovation project and uh, working with, um, with key stakeholders on, on the levels of certifications we aspire to, but most importantly, taking the incremental capital which was required to make this you know, lead platinum 
very high performance energy and carbon through governance. And governance in, in a bank is, is fiscal governance, which means that you have to put a number on it. You know? mm-hmm. So that was a very interesting uh, learning process to see how real estate made decisions around essentially operational efficiency investments. And, and that actually set the framework for our global green build program because the way we were able to essentially take the USGBC framework around the world is by creating a, a discipline around capital and executive committee sign-offs and making sure that the costs, the incremental costs of all these investments was positive for the ownership cycle of the asset. All right. So, so let's decouple that a little bit. So you're saying like when you're building a new building, there's money being spent to build the building, but you were looking at it more in a life cycle cost perspective. Is that what you mean? Exactly. So the features that were deemed green, you know, um, where everything above required code, which by the way, in Germany, are, the code levels are already pretty high. Right. Right. So, um, you know, that was the baseline. So taking it through an energy modeling uh, process, we had this great Swiss engineer. Um, This was one of the first, you know, I think a standalone heat pump, heat chiller recovery systems in a high rise with thermal storage, you know. So that along with, you know, triple glaze, high performance buildings, by the way, which were, you know, where had smart ventilation systems, which is a pretty cool thing to have nowadays, right? (laughs) Right. Yeah, so um, there was a passive cooling operating mode. So lots of different things that were built in that building. Nevertheless, that sort of got uh, started on what Greenbuild could look like. It was sort of like the lighthouse project. And then we just started marching around the world. And, and typically, our green building projects were backed by green lease agreements because most of the new build was in Asia, Pacific. And, and so we campaigned green lease standards throughout the world to establish, you know, sort of core and shell requirements that we would take ownership of and then we would manage the rest of the build out. So for a bank, they don't necessarily own the buildings that they work in, right? They're renting space. So you're saying the headquarters you owned as a bank or the bank owned. Even, even the case, bank, you know, once it was um, capitalized and released, it was sold off as a, 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 essentially a green investment product. Okay. All right. I guess a bank is going to think about how to monetize everything <laughs> they got, right? That's, that's, how, that's their DNA. Yeah. So there, are, there are thousands of people that own a piece of the Frankfurt headquarters. <laughs> Interesting. Well, okay. So, but in that in that case, then really, what you're doing is you're saying we're going to lease space. So, really, the only point we have to affect it would be at the time we sign the lease. When you say green lease, tell me what you mean by that. Oh, it's it's simple stuff. Uh, meters, you know, the efficiency of the equipment that's owner provided. In some cases, when we had lease renewals, we would uh, um, establish refit targets so far as performance targets of the building. We'd require the developer to achieve a um, LEED standard. We were the first organization to get LEED certification of any building in India. And then we, you know, within a couple of years, we were just rolling out platinum buildings in all of India. So it was amazing how quickly it happened, but most of that happened upfront with a good uh, partnership models with the, with the builder developer. Got it, so they knew what kind of building you wanted to build um, after you'd built a couple of them and you kind of learned together on how to make that happen? It's not too different than what's happening now as developers, you know, set a target for green buildings. And uh, the one thing that's, that was slightly different is we always ran through the, uh, the business model to make sure that we were getting that 
investments were looked at through the lens of operating expenses for the term of the lease. It's such a simple thing, but you know, if you sign up to a, a five-year lease or a ten-year lease, you want you know you want to have make sure all the investments that are made have a positive cash flow during that ten-year lease period, including the ones that you're asking the landlord to make. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. As campuses are thinking about maybe expanding, but maybe not building their own space, this is a pretty powerful tool. Can you translate that into, you know, since we're the Campus Energy and Sustainability Podcast, if I'm a, at, sitting at a campus and I'm not a bank and I tend to own my own buildings, how could you translate the same concept? Oh, I think that's, it's already part of the planning process is, you, um, is net zero aspirations are baked into campus plans. And you have a campus, localized campus plans relative to building standards, which push the envelope relative to code. From, a, from an operational execution standpoint, you want to have, you, know, you want to build on successes. So you want to pick the suppliers that continue to show work well. Um, in driving efficiency, we, you know, I call it green building standards verticalization, like what, what products, services, and technologies you want to continue to reuse. And then you want to centralize your energy modeling. That's a key thing because you know, the modeling is, is core to the decision-making process. And if you just have it done by architects and by their mechanical engineers and by some energy modeler you know, that's way down you know, the, um, the sort of the responsibility chain, you don't get integrated design delivery because you're not, you know, you're not testing and validating the performance potential of the building. I mean, this is the way the GSA builds their high performance buildings. Those of you who are interested in integrated design delivery, I encourage you to look at the Rocky Mountain Institute body of knowledge in this area. Yeah, in other words, you can't rely on just the developer to do all this work for you because they're making their money basically building the building. So they're, they're incentivized to basically low first cost or they can maximize their profit rather than what you're going to get stuck with, which is a building that operates over time. So you, you want to make that optimized. That makes sense. Well, so I know that the lead building was just one project you did at Deutsche Bank. Explore some of the other areas that were under your role. And then let's dig into some of those. Uh, so let's start with the reporting function, right? So right. Um, like, like many institutions started with spreadsheets and all we saw were the big buildings, right? At the time, you know, there were the large centers had environmental health and safety working committees that did reporting under an ISO quality framework. So the key thing was to get global utility bill management systems in place. So this took about two to three years to implement well, but slowly country by country, we deployed uh, central utility bill processing and data analytics or extraction around the utility bills uh, for 37 countries. And uh, for a number of countries, we interfaced you know, all the real-time uh, metering data. So another byproduct was, you know, over 300 buildings with, with real-time hourly data feeds. And that was all sort of one initiative. The, the value of doing that is now that all the data was, was flowing back for um, energy and carbon reporting, we linked that with our renewable power purchasing agreements. So, so as each country, you know, we first analyzed what the procurement approach was. We aggregated it to create a regional or usually government statewide or, or um, countrywide procurement strategies. And we bought renewable power and that data helped us do better purchasing. Uh, that was, those were actually all the quick wins. You know, in the first few years where we were so constrained, we just started 
carving out savings through aggregated procurement of power and using our standardized renewable power purchasing approach. I'm going to stop you there, though, Ron, because I think you glossed over the first part, which is you got reporting for how, 37 countries. How many different locations are we talking about here? Uh, I think there were like 5,400 sites. So you had 5,400 different locations and you had, you know, in some cases, hourly data on many of them, not all of them, but in different, how many different utilities that that's pretty crazy. So tell me how you got that far first, because I think once you have that data, that's what you were jumping to. But I want to talk, I want to stop there first. Yeah. So the, the process of setting up a centralized utility bill payment service or bureau is, is to slowly redirect the, you know, the, all the invoices to one place, um, have the data extracted. They basically had country level supports so that could do language translation, uh, make sure all the units of measures were properly applied and, uh, and put into a central database. The next step was to centralize the pay function. So you created one pay center and, and you got lots of savings, by the way, through pay optimization and auditing. So the utility bill of service, the cost of it, pay for itself in the first three years based on, on realized savings. So in other words, instead of having every individual office pay their own utility bills, you did it all in one central location and you saved money that way. Yes, but there's a, there was a lot of block and tackle because you know, a lot of this is handled by the local real estate manager, you know, getting the redirection function working, validated, closed, not dropping the ball on, on uh, pay obligations and getting the, the systems up and running globally. So we just, you know, we went through the, you know, each country at a time. But the, the outcome was that data reporting for our external reporting was automated. And, and it was very easy for us to overlay a compliance and third party audit system because the data resided in one place. Um, after we finished the global utility bill services, we started going after a scope three. So, you know, that was, uh, um, attacking all the, uh, the business travel, getting you know, data pulled back on all the trips. We actually audited down to completed trips. <laughs> so once trips, uh, interesting. Yeah, trips were completed, we, we had the final routing, we calculated the greenhouse gas emissions, we gathered up our transportation, other transportation data from the supply chain, mailings, postal services, car services. <laughs> And we you know, just slowly got our supply chain to report back to us and, and do it in such a way that just fed into our global management systems. Got it. So once you had the information, then what do they say? You can't manage what you don't measure. So that was step one is to figure out a way to measure it all. But the process of measuring paid for the cost of implementing the measurement? It pains me to see organizations that have do this still on spreadsheets with a lot of people chasing data. It's not sustainable from a, um, from a reporting function, and it doesn't provide real-time data on what's actually happening. You know, one of the byproducts of having this is we were able to create for our top 100 buildings you know, quarterly scorecards on how they were performing on energy, water, waste, if they were doing that, and carbon emissions, and normalized for weather, and compare them with, with their peer groups. So, you essentially had uh, business units and buildings competing on reductions through data, which was which was um, validated and third-party audited. <laughs> you know, so if you want to get someone to really rise up to a performance challenge, make sure the data you provide them is timely and accurate. Right. Okay. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Okay. So we've gotten uh, so you got the the buildings covered. We got the measurement and verification. 
what else? There was other other ventures that you got yourself into as your entrepreneur inside of Deutsche Bank. Well, the, we haven't even touched on the importance of communications and, and outreach. We call it resource awareness, but it was an internal campaign just to recognize the uh, leadership inside of the institution that was, they're doing good works, you know, both on the operation side and, and in, on financial products and services and uh, maintain a continuous news feed of what was happening internally and externally. So that resource awareness campaign evolved from a sort of pretty static website to personal carbon calculators, pledge sites, educational sessions, community outreach programs, you know, for when I recognize that this is Climate Week in, in New York City, but for five years we were a key sponsor of, of Climate Week we were able to create these forums around um, being a responsible citizen. Um, but that whole communications program created a transparency and visibility and excitement inside the bank. And people felt proud, you know, with all the other stuff that was going on, <laughs> that, that this was something that was actually creating a, a positive impact to the environment and the community. Yeah, I guess it shouldn't be... Uh it should be noted that you were doing this right after the financial crisis, like you said earlier. So banks were not the most popular at that point in our country's history. Yeah. And this was, um, this was uh, I guess, productive defense, but it was actually, I'll take any crisis to, to a good purpose. Yeah, fair enough. Well, you know, a question I often ask university presidents when I'm able to interview them is, what percentage of their, of their time do they get to think about energy and sustainability topics? My guess is it's usually a pretty low percent. I think the most I've ever heard a university president tell me was like one or maybe 5%. And those were some of the ones that I met at sustainability conferences. So they were like, you know, the cream of the crop. I assume the chief operations officer for Deutsche Bank probably also didn't spend most of their time thinking about sustainability. But how did you get their attention and how did you get them on board with making this much change? Because, you know, the things you're talking about are pretty substantial initiatives, even at the scale of a company like Deutsche Bank? No, I think one to 5% is probably right to ask from your, your leadership team. And most of it is input-based, but a lot of it's commitment-based. And you, you want to create, you want to translate a person's current job responsibility into what they can do to contribute. It's, and, and, and make that part of their goal setting you know, for the year and, and be their partner too. You know, so if you're working with the, essentially the head of, of real estate services, you'll be their partner in making sure that the green building program is executed on a consistent way, that they have the best consultants supporting the work, and that there's standard governance and sign-off for capital. And then you, you pick out an innovation initiative going, hey, let's go, let's go figure out how to do green leases because you're gonna be able to write better agreements around the world and save money. If you're talking to the chief infrastructure architect who ran IT, the Green IT Initiative was a, a, a tremendous opportunity for them to look at scaling in new technology to build free cooling data centers and reduce the um, IT footprint of the workplace. So you work with them to develop the eco-reporting framework and the lifecycle costing approach and the, the board level briefing material so they can go do that work. By the way, it results in, in lower operating costs and better performance. You just kind of carve off these leadership opportunities uh, with each person that is part of your working committee. The first thing that we did was form a, an eco-operations committee and include stakeholders from 
different parts of the organization from global sourcing to the global carbon and renewable energy markets, you know, to uh, real estate investments. And, and each of these people had a different lens of, of what sustainability meant to them. And you just helped them evolve that. So with the senior leadership, so like the chief operations officer, or the CEO, folks like that, they're going to be recipients of information from their departments under. So it sounds like you're saying you worked with people that reported to them to make sure they had a way of telling a sustainability story within their own context. Is that a good? That's story? that's exactly right. You know, and then then you are then you're an insert to the uh, you know the global sustainability report, which had a broader set of sustainability attributes that were being reported on. You know, a lot of them in the HR world and and giving world. So you just you you were part of the environmental operations leadership team. And and okay. the, the interesting thing too is that as the part of doing this, you we started to invent new products that were used in the financing world you know so it was an opportunity for us to operationalize some global funds for climate change for energy efficiency in europe uh, a private equity fund for energy efficiency and real estate the work that we did internally became productized in in the fund management world so in other words you piloted some of these ideas within the operations of the bank and then once you understood them you could sell that as a product to your client yeah, we sessions. We were the operations backbone for the product, you know. So right. green green bonds right now have have standard ways of reporting and disclosure. Um, so so now it's it's still evolving world. You know, we had a, we built this expertise around project accounting and disclosure of performance of investments, and that became used in financial products. Okay, now that makes sense. So then back to your committee, you said you had a committee from different departments, which I think is pretty common in lots of organizations. When you built that committee, how senior were the folks on it? Were they fairly high level or were they a little bit more down in the management hierarchy? No, they were pretty high level. Um, so, you know, head of global head of real estate, global head of data infrastructure, global head of, of workplace IT, <laughs> managing director of, you know, carbon and renewable markets the office of the vice chairman, you know, I mean, um, so they, they led a, a operational function, a central operation function across the business. Do you, I, I assume you worked with them individually then too on their particular initiatives, at least that's the way you just described it. Maybe walk us through, how did you approach conversations with each department lead or maybe take us through a couple examples? Uh, we've gone through some of them already, you know, in real estate, it was focused on the green bills, the green leases, and the greening of the FM contracts. Uh, a lot of outsourcing. FM being? Facility management contracts, right? So, so uh, you know, we didn't perform our own facility management. We outsourced it. So putting the um, sustainability requirements and energy program management requirements into the, the facility management contracts allowed us to basically get staffing from our supply chain to go do all the right things, you know. On tax and regulations and incentive management, that was an opportunity to, to interface with finance. Uh, so as we started collecting money for solar projects, we had to create all the linkages. Um, there was regulatory frameworks we were tracking and managing, things like the, the voluntary carbon reduction. You know, so it, it, there was every, every um, we had this thing called a 10 point plan, but the 10 point plan was constantly socialized with performance improvements shown against the plan. 
And so each of the plan elements had a KPI. You know, this is management 101. You showed how the, the key performance indicator improved over time and what the outcomes were. And, you know, that dashboard just kept getting better. All right. Well, one of the, one of the things I've struggled with in working with higher ed clients is they don't actually think like banks. I mean, there are a few people that work there that think in those terms, you know, fo folks in the budget office potentially. Let's dig into this capital planning concept. So it sounds like most of what you were doing at the bank was you were leveraging contracts or leases or relationships with other vendors in a lot of cases to get done what you wanted to get done. Is that is it a fair summary of the work? I don't mean to minimize it, but that, that was kind of the major lever that you pulled. A lot of times when we're talking with higher ed clients, it's really about making that choice to spend more money on a building so it operates more efficiently. But those budgets are so different that you can never cross the void between the capital planning budget and the operational budget, for example. As we're looking at campus energy systems doing steam to hot water conversions, that's another one. It's really capital intensive, but it saves an insane amount of operational dollars. But you, you have to overcome that void. Is there anything you can share from the work you did at, at Deutsche Bank Think that kind of translates into that topic. I mean, maybe a bit of a curveball here, but I hopefully. Yeah, no, I think that there there are models that are in work right now. So revolving funds, where savings from from efficiency and and which is really a facility management function, gets captured at a central operations level, like the utility plant level, and you just have a better accountability of of that service. Very important as campuses roll out their smart campus infrastructure plan to do that at a central level and not just do it building by building. On the new construction side, a little bit more tricky. You know, you can write it into your, um, you know, obviously your procurement requirements for architects and engineers to do life cycle cost modeling and maybe write in aspirations for lead targets. Those are the footholds or hooks to build better buildings. But my guidance is that just a certification is not enough. I mean, I've seen way too many green build buildings that use an excess amount of energy and water and way more than they were modeled and estimated. So a good post-performance assurance programs, you know, enhanced commissioning is important to make sure those investments in high-performance buildings are actually realized. So when you were at the bank, I mean, it sounds like you were able to cross that void, though. Is that true? And is that different than my experience in higher ed that I've seen? I mean, is, is there something separate or different about the way that the for-profit world works than, than higher ed works? Or is it just people need to get out of their own way? <laughs> it's more the latter. We had a very a, a simple a KISS principle is that any business decision we made had to have the highest cash flow return on investment for the term of the investment, right? Okay. You know, so if you were building, we, 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 would, we would go 10-year standard life cycle analysis, um, you know, and uh, if it had a positive cash flow, do it. And, and by, to the greatest, the greatest extent possible, have your partners do the work and help uh, prepare whatever it is, a building or technology platform for that. So it's more of a service rather than go build it yourself. So again, as you're thinking about a building, you have to think about coming up with the budget, coming up with the design, that life cycle cost has to be thought of at that moment because at, at, once it's built, that's too late, right? It's too late. You can't build your way to carbon neutrality. I mean, and, I mean yeah. oh, typically that's, that the, that's what's happening with a lot of higher ed 
the clients they're building you know new student life facilities new buildings they're adding to their footprint and they're wondering why they're why they can't achieve their their baseline reductions so uh, we were in a growth mode we built a lot of work points the numbers i'm most proud of is we were we were able to achieve carbon neutrality in five years fully audited create you know over 70 million dollars of baseline savings over business as usual and uh, that's accounting for all the the program management costs. Let's come back to this concept of the eco, eco PMO. I guess that's our, our general topic. And as with many conversations with you, Ron, we can go all sorts of different directions, which is one, one thing I love about talking to you. But um, back to this office, you were essentially given authority to work with the different departments. You were given some, I guess, top level goals to achieve. Maybe let's talk a little bit about that. What was the role of what senior leadership asked you to do, you've talked a little bit about how you've actually accomplished it, but what, what was the message they gave to you? And then how did you report back to them in such a way that they knew you were on the right track and so that you could build momentum? Well, the, the highest aspiration was to be carbon neutral in five years and to do it in an exemplar manner, you know, scope one, two, and three, and put up the systems in place that we can maintain that carbon neutrality commitment. So that was the board level commitment. Underneath that was really just the execution of the work and the energy efficiency, renewable power purchasing, building green buildings, our eco IT program, the way we, we managed our utilities and build processes, all were just execution levers to get to that goal. So it's no different than higher ed institutions that sign up to the Paris Accord or some, you know, a state aspirational goal. How do you get there? That reporting function and glide path to that was was key. When you say reporting function here, you mean how do I tell the executives, yes, we're on track to meet our carbon neutrality goal, or yes, we're on track to meet our energy efficiency target or something like that. Is that what you mean? That's exactly. So that was that annual reporting function that was linked with the sustainable reports. CEOs will change up on you. I think I went through three CEOs. Every time there's a revalidation of what the programs are, what you're spending money on, how it benefits the business. So this was always, a, this was a durable initiative. But carbon reporting, the information management systems that back that carbon reporting are still in place. The green bill programs are, are built into the way projects get built. The procurement renewable power is just business as usual. <laughs> the carbon offsets are now fully certified, you know, renew selective renewable power projects and that are marginal and incremental. So the system just now runs on its own. In fact, you know, I, I tell uh, my colleagues who want to be energy and sustainability managers is that their goal is to work themselves out of a job in three to five years. Yeah, which is what you did, right? <laughs> yeah, that should be their goal. You know, if they if they execute the operational systems. Now, granted, there's a lot of leadership. Leadership will come on with new ideas of how to. You know, right now the supply chain initiatives are are really exciting. In our world, we carved off IT equipment, furniture, uh, paper, <laughs> print services, hoteling. I mean, there's a couple of supply chain initiatives that we required um, as part of the CDP reporting to to report on it. One of the things that we did that was really interesting is our, our car lease program in Germany is that uh, since we knew how many miles were being driven by our employees in their leased cars, uh, we actually provide feedback on the efficiency of the German automobile industry 
to the industry. <laughs> Interesting. And, and we use okay. that to we use that to rack and stack and eliminate inefficient vehicles in our lease programs. But those are you know those are all things that the innovation is all happening in scope three right now. But on the operational side, if you do your job right, it should be an embedded function in a three to five year period. Well, one of the questions that you get a lot with anybody that's doing something ambitious is how much of it is real. And I mean, most of what you've just described really is operational efficiency, as you mentioned up front. So I mean, I, I would characterize that as real stuff, right? This is not, not greenwashing. But how do you keep a program like this from becoming just greenwashing or being, you know, the aspects of it that you're doing being kind of overstated by folks in communications that want to just tell a story that sounds good in a few sound bites versus it being something that is durable? Like, what are the elements to that? Um, just constantly being transparent, continuing to innovate around projects and programs and being data ready. Since we had a, a constant reporting internal website, a Passion for the Planet website, it was very easy for the people who were doing external comms to drop into our, you know, our, essentially our, our virtual work environment and see what's going on. And then we had, you know, once a month, we, we picked something out of the operations side of the bank to celebrate, you know, so, and those mm -hmm. were, those were all, they were engineered financially and engineered projects so they could be reviewed and validated. And, and one of my most satisfying role was to act as a climate ambassador. As we learned how to do this well, we had a chance to work with other corporations and government entities and establishing systems and procedures to do this well. Uh, it was just constant focus on operations and transparency. Now, fair enough, okay. Well, so Ron, you don't work at Deutsche Bank anymore. You work with me, which I'm glad to have you as a team member. How did you work yourself out of a job? Um, well, I, I moved back to a beautiful green Seattle for one reason and did no longer would live in the financial services centers of the world. And I really wanted to take my learnings and translate them in, into the public sector. All the work that has been honed and deployed in, in the private sector is transferable. It's a common name, it's a playbook. So for each of these sort of activities, green leases, you know, um, greening FM, capital project development, utilities and functions, there's a, there's a playbook. And a playbook is, is a um, living, breathing set of, of suggested plays in order to win. Energy and sustainability is a fantastic area to play and win and, and create a, you know, triple bottom line impacts that celebrate operational excellence and facility management and capital programs, celebrate the impact students have and their, and their stewardship of their sustainability programs and the executives who are willing and brave enough to be creative in the way they, they do partnerships and source capital and, and, and accelerate their work. This is an opportunity for us to continue to do this at scale. And there are so many institutions that have made commitments. And I think our role is to help them execute on those commitments. As we sit here in maybe a little bit smokier than normal Seattle, but uh, still green Seattle, um, I'm looking forward to working with you on all that, getting a lot of these ideas out into the higher ed space. I know a lot of these are in various levels of implemented at different campuses, but it does seem like there's a lot of learning from what you've done at Deutsche Bank that we can apply together. So I look forward to working with you on that. Yeah, and, and my heart and prayers go out to all the people suffering at home, stuck due to COVID or, or fires. Right now, the focus on 
keeping communities health and safety in the, in the part infrastructure plays is at a unique focus point. So let's make buildings and communities more resilient. Here, here. All right. Anything I didn't ask you that uh, you'd like to share with the listeners? Don't give up. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Well, good. Ron, I, uh, as I mentioned, I look forward to working with you on this. Thanks for taking the time to talk about a little bit about your past and look forward to helping to shape the future with you. Take care, David. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks to Kelsey Harding for her production assistance. As always, you can find show notes, transcripts, and contact details for our guests at our website, campusenergypodcast.com. If you'd like to follow our show on social media, our Twitter handle is at energypodcast. You can find us on LinkedIn by searching for Campus Energy and Sustainability Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, consider leaving us a rating or review on iTunes or just sending a link to a friend. As always, thanks for listening. Thank you.